Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. This week we move on from the 13th chapter of Corinthians, which is the love chapter, to the 14th chapter. And in the 14th chapter, we move back to what occasioned the love chapter, which was division. So let us hear the word of God as it's recorded by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. This is the word of the Lord. Now you remember what's going on in the Corinthian church, which is that they're they're fighting, and You know that if you're ever around children, whether they're your grandchildren or playground, whatever it is, the minute children get together, there arises a striving amongst them. And you want to nip it in the bud. You know, you want to deal with it right at the beginning when you hear the whining begin, right when you know that the tension's building. You know that if a dad gets on the floor of his living room with his kids and begins to wrestle, the mother's job is to say, there are going to be tears, Well, the same thing is true of kids when they get together. You can hear the voices start to be a little edgy, and if as a parent you're not aware of that, pretty soon you're going to have a fight. It's inevitable, and there will be tears. Now, the same is true of the church. Every single time you get a group of Christians together, there will arise a striving among us. This is just the way we are. It's the way I am. It's the way you are. And what happened in the Corinthian church is, if there was anything they could fight about, they would fight about it. If there was any way they could hurt each other, they'd hurt each other. They seemed to be uh, perfectionists at sin. There was no sin that they didn't observe faithfully. So when it came to the gifts that God gave the church... And there are a whole bunch of different gifts that God puts in the church for the building up of the body. Instead of using them to serve each other, they use them to get a leg up on each other. And so the person whose gift was faith but couldn't teach resented the person that could teach but didn't have the gift of faith. And the teacher used his gift of teaching to minimize faith. The person whose gift was caring for the children resented the person whose gift was working with high school students. And that person resented the person who knew how to build buildings. And so whatever the gift was, they used it to oppress each other. 
And it wasn't just the person who preached to oppress the people that didn't preach. It was all the people that didn't have the gift of preaching who used their pity party to oppress the preacher. And so the minute people get together, there will arise a striving among them as to which of them is the greatest. And instead of using our gifts to serve one another, we use our gifts to get a leg up on each other. And the person who's weak, humble, is a master at getting a leg up on other people through pity parties. We all know that the person that preaches is a master at getting a leg up on everybody else by using his preaching to oppress people, right? You all know that happens. But you don't realize how often it is that it's the weak person that oppresses everybody with their weakness. So those of you who are weak, are you going to cop to that? That you use your weakness to consume the time of the preacher. So, are you going to cop to it? Now listen, I'm not saying this to oppress those of you who are weak, (laughs) okay? But I want you to understand that we are very sophisticated in trying to get a leg up on each other. And we need to get much better at examining our motives for the reasons that we do things. Weakness is never to be despised. It's not to be despised by the strong because weakness brings into a church a sweetness and unity that strength will never bring. Does this make sense to you? I remember being in the hospital after I had my appendix removed, and I was in agony afterwards. I won't give you the gory details, but I was in agony. And I looked up on the wall, and there was a television. And on the television was this commercial that got played over and over again. I never watched the television. It was just on. I don't know why it was on. But I was not in any mood to appreciate anything other than relief. And I wasn't getting relief. And on the television was this ad for nurses. And the nurse they had, I was, I was thankful it was actually a woman, but that was the only thing they gave me that I needed in that ad. Because the nurse was, she was a take-charge woman. And she took charge. And you can be a nurse too. And I kept watching this commercial over and over again of this take-charge woman. And I needed a nurse. And I was in pain. And I looked at that woman and I thought, please don't send me a nurse like that. I need a woman who's merciful, not who takes charge. Right? Weakness, and by that I mean sensitivity and mercy. Sensitivity and mercy don't demand that everybody submit to it. It is perceived to be weakness. Weakness has every bit as important a place in the church as teaching and preaching. Because after all, if you're not weak, I don't want to do my job. Because what's the point of preaching to a know-it-all? You want to talk about an oppressive person, it's the know-it-all. Because the know-it-all takes away my reason to exist. You know, the smarty pants is demoralizing for a preacher. 
You know, afterwards he comes up to you and says, I knew all that, and, and furthermore, do you realize how stupid you are in saying this? You know, there's always a couple of them in a church. They come up to you afterwards and parade the fact that they neither needed you nor did you do your job well. Okay? I need the weak person who just looks at me and says, thank you. Listen, I don't need them to look at me and say, you're wonderful. I learned a long time ago that person is my enemy. I don't ever want anybody to tell me I'm wonderful because, number one, I know they're lying, and number two, I know that either right then or soon I'm going to hear what they want out of me. But I want them to be grateful for the Word of God. Does that make sense to you? So the person that needs instruction is a gift to the church just as the one that gives the instruction. But where are we going to be if there is no instruction? And so here are the Corinthians, and they're fighting like dogs and cats. The weak oppress the strong, and the strong oppress the weak. The stupid oppress the bright, and the bright oppress the stupid. The fat oppress the thin, the thin oppress the fat. The black oppress the white, the white oppress the black. The men oppress the women, the women oppress the men. And, and you know I'm right about that in the, in, in the Corinthian church because you remember how he teaches what it is to be a woman and a man. So we know that the men and women were oppressing each other as a category of existence. Earth to Bloomington! There's a category of existence called man and woman. Earth to Bloomington. So they oppressed each other as man and woman. They weren't a bunch of androgynous, metrosexual, effeminate, butch, dyke. The men were oppressing the women, and the women were oppressing them. In every category of existence that God had decreed for them, they were using that category of existence to oppress each other. And one of those categories of existence was the gift that God had given them. So in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul goes through the gifts. And he says, look, you guys, the gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. They're not your choice. The Holy Spirit gives them the way the Holy Spirit wants to give them. It doesn't matter what you want. God gave that gift to you through his spirit. It originated with him, and you have it to serve the others. It's not given to you for you to serve yourself. It's not given to you to get a leg up on other people. And those of you that have strength, don't look down on the people that have weakness. And those of you who are weak, would you please stop whining? And you say, well, the Bible doesn't say that. I say, yes, it does. What it says is that the eye says to the foot, I don't need you, and the foot says, I'm nothing if I'm not an eye. That's what it means. Stop whining. Enough with the pity parties. Enough with the poor, poor, pitiful me. Okay? Don't be strong in your weakness. We just need your weakness. Weak, 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 kind of weak. Would you be weak? And then he goes on and he begins to list the different gifts in chapter 12. Okay? Now, this is where we're headed this week. Because in his list, do you remember what he says in the list? He goes through and he lists. Let me read you the list. 
Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And he goes down, and in verse, to each one, verse 7, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, so, you know, you've got a delineation of the gifts, You have Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the unification and peace of a church, delineating the categories of gifts they all have. He says, one this, one this, one this, one this, one this. Every time he brings, it just separates. You know, gifts, healing, prophecy, interpretate, bop, 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 bop. You know, it's like a butcher with a piece of meat. Bam, 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 bam. Okay, you with me? And then he says this. Now, you are Christ's body. And so he's gone through the whole thing about the hand saying to the foot and the foot saying to the hand. He shows it would be absurd if you with your gifts for the body were to act the way your body never acts because your body doesn't go around saying, you know, I'm going to take my thumb. My thumb. Your thumb doesn't say, I'm going to poke the eye out. And your eye doesn't say, I don't see you, thumb. You know, and everybody laughs because, of course, that's not how your body works. A body like that doesn't work. A body like that has cerebral palsy, right? Where Bob, if you, if you go to kiss his cheek, he might just bite your nose off, right? You all know Bob. He can't control his body for the good of his whole body. And so we, who are not afflicted with cerebral palsy, don't go around biting people's noses off when they try to kiss us. And we don't step on our left toe with our right heel. Right? And we don't slap ourselves. Paul says, look, we're, we're the body of Christ, and we, we have to act like we're a body that's a real body. We don't go around saying we don't need the eye. The eye doesn't say in, that I don't need the hand. The hand doesn't say unless I'm... And then he says, now... You, so he's shown the way our body works together healthily, and he says, now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Okay? So he's talked about hands, feet, thumbs, eyes, all this stuff. He says, okay, your body, and he says, and individually members of it. So just like the individual members of the thumb, the pinky, the nose, the eyes, you are individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church. Now, stop here. Right here, if we know there's division in the church and we are Americans in the early 21st century, what we think at this point is, okay, uh, yeah, I'm into it. I'll be a part of the body, you know, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm okay that I have a, a, a gift that's important and it's different other people's gifts. And, you know, my gift is faith. My gift is giving. My gift is administration. You know, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, I'm hip with that. You know, it's cool. It's cool. And so let's hear the gifts again. All right, so here he goes. Now you're individually members of it, and now he begins to separate us again, right? And he says, and God has appointed in the church prophets, teachers, tongues, administrations, apostles, healings, helps, miracles, 
Is that what he does? It's not what he does. That's what we want him to do. What we want him to do is take all the gifts that are in the church, throw them up in the air, let them come down willy-nilly where they want, and then close your eyes and pick them up one by one and announce them to the church. We hate distinctions. And if there's something we hate more than distinctions, it is ordering the distinctions. We hate hierarchy. We hate it. And hierarchy is a euphemism for authority. And we hate authority. I hate authority. You hate authority. We hate authority. It is so deep in our DNA that we're not aware of it. And it's not until you begin to love God enough to to see your sin and that takes a lot of love of God, to begin to see how much you hate authority. And so, fasten your safety belts, because Paul's going to do a number on you. He doesn't say what I just said. He has an order to the gifts, and it goes from number one to number nine or ten. And in the first three, he actually uses numbers. That's how obnoxious he is. He doesn't just list them in a decreasing emphasis or a decreasing order of importance, but he actually shoves your nose into which one's number one by saying what? First. Okay, so here it is. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. Now, that's okay with us because, you know, we're not a black church. We're not Pentecostal. And so we don't have apostles. You know, so we don't mind apostles being first, right? Right? Second, prophets. Well, like I said, we're not black. We're not Pentecostal. So who cares, you know? It doesn't matter if prophets are second because they're done away with, right? John MacArthur told us that, right? So... So the apostles are done with, thank goodness. And the prophets are done with, thank goodness. Okay, third, teachers. Well, that sounds about right, doesn't it? Because I've noticed in America that all authority is done with except the authority of Washington, D.C. and professors. You know, every single piece on NPR begins with, we talk to Professor so-and-so at the University of such-and-such who has his Ph.D. and thingamabit, you know. And they trot out the authority, and then that person tells us the truth, right? And so it's okay to have third teachers because we're done with apostles, finally. And then we're done with prophets, for heaven's sakes. But teachers, you know, I'm going to be a teacher someday. And so it doesn't really bug us that teachers are number one. I mean, they're really number three, but they're number one because we've done away with number one and number two. Right? John MacArthur told us to do away with number two. And John Calvin told us to do away with number one. Except John Calvin said that sometimes God raises up apostles like in a weird way, and he says Martin Luther is one of those men. So John Calvin had one apostle, and that was Martin Luther, but he was kind of apologetic about it. So we're done with apostles, we're done with prophets, and we come to teachers, and, and you know, most of us are getting our doctorates, right? 
or at least our high school diploma. And we all know that there's only one sin left in America, right? And the one sin left in America is making the wrong choice. And we all know that the purpose of government is to make sure no child is left behind. And so in other words, there is one authority left in the world, and that's the person that can teach us to make the right choice. And so we're all okay with number one being a teacher, right? Everybody okay with it? Is everybody okay with it? Okay, let's keep going. Then, so okay, teachers, then miracles. Well, <laughs> you know, we're not black and we're not Pentecostal. <laughs> so we, we don't believe in miracles, right? I mean, am I right? John MacArthur told us they're done. Right? Come on, you guys, am I right? No? All right, all right. Maybe there are miracles, you know, but I mean, for white people, that scares us. <laughs> all right, okay. All right, we're keeping on going. All do not have uh, second miracles and gifts of healing. Well, you know, we're not Pentecostal. Gifts of healings? I mean, honestly. Hey, Adam, where's Adam? Oh, he came to the first church. Lawrence is retired, so we, I don't think we have a doctor here, do we? Is there a doctor here? Oh, yeah, Bob! Okay, gifts of healings. Thank goodness you're here. Okay, let's see. Then helps. Well, you know, the help. My wife read this book, and then it was made into a movie, and I have a friend that pastors this humongous church with 70 elders in Jackson, Mississippi. I say use friend loosely. And uh, they have the help. It's all in the nursery. The nursery's black, and the sanctuary's white. You got to have the help, right? Okay, so we got the helps. Then administrations, and this particular church has a rule against those people coming here. I've, I've discovered this this last week. <laughs> I mean, honestly. So, thank goodness we don't have to deal with that one. Okay, and then various kinds of tongues. We don't do that. We're not Pentecostal. <laughs> okay, now what am I doing? Well, I'll open it up in the next few weeks, but these are supernatural gifts. In other words, these are gifts from the Holy Spirit who is supernatural. And every one of these gifts is good for the good of the church, and some of them are more frequent than others. Some are clearly time-bound for specific occasions, we know that there was 400 years of no prophecy after Malachi, right? Everybody knows that. In the intertestamental period, they went for four centuries without the precious gift of prophets. We don't think of prophets as being a precious gift, but trust me, prophets are a precious gift. And so these gifts come and go. These gifts are more evident and less evident. These gifts tend to be more evident at times when the church is just being founded, 
Obviously, the gifts of healings and the miracles were more directly tied to the founding of the church because never in the history of the church since has there ever been everybody agreeing that there were a ton of miracles, including the casting out of demons, raising from the dead, healing of the, the blind so that they can see the lame, so they can walk and leap and praise God. But there is an order to these gifts. And when, I be, when I'm being facetious about, well, we don't do that and we don't do that, part of the reason I'm saying that is I am going to go in and to say that we must not squelch the Holy Spirit. And one way you can deal with division over these gifts is to just say, we don't do those things. And that's generally the way Presbyterians and whites have handled it. Honestly. We just say, we don't do that, we don't do that, we don't do that, we don't do that. And then pretty soon, what's left? Well, money and preaching. <laughs> you know? Isn't that really what's left in the, in the Reformed Church today? You've got preachers, and then you've got the money. Okay, aesthetics, but honestly, anybody who's, who wants to bring aesthetics back into the church, uh, sorry, but they're headed to Rome. I mean, honestly. My father always referred to all the people in Wheaton that were all caught up with, uh, with uh, Bob Weber and his Episcopalian thing. And my dad just, my dad was very sophisticated. He said, it's all bells and smells. And that was his way of saying that the church of Jesus Christ is not to be a place that emphasizes aesthetics. And the reason is it's so easy for it to turn into idolatry. That's why the, Reform, the Reformation simplified its music, simplified its preaching, simplified its Bibles. Everything was pursuing simplicity so that our worship would be of God and not of our aesthetics. The thing about aesthetics is that in a decadent culture, the artists become the gods, right? Do we all know this? Does everybody know that? It's a very important concept for you to know. The more decadent a culture, the more the artists are the gods. And I've done more rock concerts than I think anybody in this room has done. And it's idolatry. Okay? It's idolatry. There's no, there, unless it's IU basketball, there is no experience of transcendence that gets anywhere close to a rock concert. Is everybody going to, unless it's maybe a classical concert. I don't know, which do you think is worse? It's six of one, a half dozen of the other. And isn't it nice for you to be the composer and have the adulation at your feet? That wasn't a joke. <laughs> he does compose. He does go when his pieces are, are, are performed. And I'm sure it's very, as they say, gratifying. <laughs> right? Well, listen. We can talk about whether or not we allow the gift of healing, whether we allow miracles, whether we allow tongues, whether we allow prophecy. We can talk about how the purpose of the church today is to control the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit always humbles us. You understand what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit has never worked in your life without humbling you. Are you all with me? And so the preacher is the one that we pay to protect us from the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? So the preacher is to orchestrate things in such a way that the Word of God does not cut and pierce and hammer and burn. 
We hire preachers, the larger our church is and the richer it is, we hire preachers to protect us from the Word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword. Okay? That's the purpose of a search committee. All right? The search committee is supposed to know exactly where it is imperative that this church be protected from the Word of God. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of a search committee. All right? And then we know that the purpose of a theological tradition is to cut off certain things that are dangerous. So if you value teaching above anything else, you don't want prophets. Because prophets aren't dotting their I's and crossing their T's. Prophets are just prophesying. Can you imagine what the Pharisees and Sadducees had to say when the prophet said, you people get up and worship and you keep saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you know? Remember that? And everybody's going, well, wait, what about the temple of the Lord? You're speaking disrespectfully of the temple of the Lord. He's saying, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm speaking disrespectfully about your hypocrisy. That's what a prophet does. A prophet makes broad stroke points that people who are getting degrees in chemistry and engineering never like. Because every particular thing a prophet says can be argued against, whereas teachers are meticulous. So if you, if you need heavy work done, you bring in a prophet. If you need a little bit less heavy work done, you bring in a teacher, right? And so today in the Reformed Church, listen, we have no prophets. Are you with me? We have no apostles. We have no miracles. We have... No healings, and we certainly don't have tongues. Right? Am I right? And then we get rid of preachers, and we have only teachers. Because a preacher applies the Word of God, and a teacher lets the application be done by the Holy Spirit. It sounds good, doesn't it? Listen, people, God has given every one of those gifts for the building up of the church. And it is absolutely inexcusable for the apostle to get a leg up on the helper. And it's despicable for the helper to get a leg up on the apostle. And what you see in the book of First and Second Corinthians is you see the apostle Paul fighting for the dignity of the apostle. So don't tell me it's always one way, that it's the person that preaches and teaches and the prophets that are whooping up on everybody else. In Corinth, it was the women who were whooping up on the men, and it was the whole church despising the Apostle Paul. And if that isn't despicable, I don't know what is. You imagine if we brought a baby up front and I began to dance up and down on the baby in my combat boots. How long would I last? I wouldn't last a second. Why not? Well, because a baby's nobody's enemy. And would you explain to me precisely how a man who's been shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead, who knows how many times and last, who knows how many strokes, a man who's despised by the super apostles in the church, a man who's made fun of because he's weak, a man who lost everything in his life, for the sake of the church and Jesus. And 
everywhere this guy goes except Philippi. (laughs) God bless Philippi. He is trampled on by the church. The Apostle Paul. And listen, he's still trampled on today. He's still trampled on today. If the Apostle Paul came to Bloomington, to any church, including this one, and began to preach the way he preached in his time, we would have no tolerance for him. We would say he's a man that has no idea how sophisticated we are and what's imperative to us. When he began to go off on men and women and authority and submission, we would boot him out the door in two seconds and tell him to go out to Mormon land. (laughs) You know, he can sing with a Mormon tabernacle choir. (laughs) And so... The Apostle Paul gives this gnarly list. He gives first, second, third. He orders these things. And then he says at the end, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. So he already gave an order. Then he said first, second, third. And at the very end, he says earnestly desire the greater gifts. And we don't believe there are greater gifts because we're egalitarian. You know, and we say, Paul, did you have to say greater gifts? And then a stroke of genius He goes off on love. And you know, that's perfect. You know, because love, love, love. Do, 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 love. All you need is love. Boop, 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 boop. All you need is love. Boop, 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 boop. All you need is love, 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 love. Love is all you need. Right? And it's such a relief You know, to go from this nasty division and first, second, third, and greater to love. I'm into love. You into love? We all into love? Oh, love is so sweet. We got a row of love here. You're you're not yet with you, but my goodness, it'll come. Well, I think it's love. I mean, it may not be love. It may not be true love yet. That doesn't happen until you get married, by the way. (laughs) So the Apostle Paul goes off on love. He says, all the gifts without love are nothing. Then he says, this is what love is. It's hard work. Love is patient. It's kind, you know. It's not a mist and a vapor. It's not a sentiment. It's not a feeling. It's hard work. And then he says at the end of it, and furthermore, the great triumvirate, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, and it'll last forever. And we're all like, yes, finally the love chapter. (laughs) You know, finally, right? And we get to the end of the love chapter, and this nasty dude, honestly, he just doesn't get it. He says, pursue love. That's what he's been saying, pursue love. Yet, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And this dude doesn't get it, you know. He's back into this order and the hierarchy and the division and the distinction and the separations, and he's right away back in it of giving these distinctions, you know. And it's like, doesn't he get it that if everybody loves each other, we're done with distinctions. The only people that need distinctions are people that don't love. 
Listen, that's what every single one of you thinks. Every single one of you thinks that the more you love, the less there will be distinctions. That's what you think. Only little people who are stupid and prejudiced see distinctions. It's cosmic intellectuals like me who just don't see nothing but just gray. You know? Hodgepodge, melange. The more spiritual you get, the less you'll see distinctions. The more spiritual you get, the less you'll see she be a woman, and I know by how her dungarees are fitting her. (laughs) Scotly people don't see women's bodies. Really, godly people don't know whether it's a man or a woman. They're just persons. And dang it about that, sons. Listen, everything about our culture is trying to, is trying to lay waste and to destroy the beauty of the creation that God has given us. And the beauty of the creation is distinctions. And when it comes to culture and race, we're all on board with that. We all think we need all the races and all the cultures, right? So why, when it comes to authority and submission, do we hate it? Why, when it comes to bright and stupid, do we hate it? Listen, there are people who are just stupid. Okay, you don't like me saying stupid. Okay, fine. Thick-headed. Dumb, obtuse, that's me, that's me. So I'll tell you the story again. So I go, I go to UW-Madison, and I take, a few, I take a few years of class, I get married, have a child. The weight of life has descended on my shoulders. And I have a job starting next year out in Boulder at First Presbyterian, And it begins in September, and I'm in my final year. And in my final year, if I'm going to get a bachelor's degree, I have to do one of two things. Either take statistics or Greek. I've been putting it off. And I know I will never, never be able to learn statistics because when it comes to numbers, you have no idea how thick-headed I am. And I'm also thick-headed about languages. It took me two years to do first-year Spanish well. And well was a C. Two years in Elgin High School. Graduated in the bottom half of my class with less than a C average at Elgin High School. Anybody know Elgin? Okay. Is Elgin a place of academic uh, respectability? (laughs) And it was the worst of the two schools, and it wasn't Larkin. It was Elgin High School. And so I go into the Greek class, and there's 45 people in there, and there is Mrs. Fowler, and she has a handmade dress on, and she graduated from Bryn Mawr. And she says, now, there are 45 of you in this class. She's about 60, 65. There are 45 of you in this class. At the end of the first semester, there will be 25 of you. At the end of the second semester, there will be 15 of you left. 
and I have to pass to get my bachelor's, and I have to get my bachelor's to go to Boulder to take the job. And I have a wife and a child, and, and I'm taking a full load. This is just one class. And I am absolutely petrified. Why? Because I'm thick-headed. And so I went up to her after the class, and I said to her, Mrs. Fowler, I want you to know that I am a goat. And I will not leave. And she looks at me and she kind of smiles and she says, all right, then, well, we better work hard. <laughs> so I looked around and she began to talk about nominative. And even though I had Spanish, I had no idea what nominative was. I had no idea what cases were. And so I looked around and everybody else was cool with it, you know, because everybody else was a classics major or a linguistics major. And I knew I didn't belong. And so every day I would study and I would have had a little notebook and I would make a hash mark. Not for an hour when I studied, but for every 15 minutes. And I studied an average of between two and two and a half hours every day of the week except Sunday for that entire year, just on that class. Are you with me? At the end of the first semester, there were 25 left. At the end of the second semester, our final exam was taking a large chunk of Plato that we had never seen without a lexicon and translating. Two semesters. And my insides were jello. And so I called up Mrs. Fowler, and I said, Mrs. Fowler, I'm scared out of my wits. I can't bear the suspense until the final comes. Would you let me take it early, please? <laughs> and she laughed, and she said, well, I suppose, Timothy. So I went into her office. She gave me the test. I went in another cubicle and took the test, handed it into her, and then I talked to her about Jesus Christ. Because I love Mrs. Fowler because Mrs. Fowler disciplined me. And when I got done talking to her about sin and righteousness and judgment, pleading with her for her soul, she looked at me and she said, Timothy, that was very sweet. But you must understand, I am a classicist. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, does not compute. Classicist, Christian. But that was her explanation. You're very cute, you're very sweet, but I'm a classicist. So I said, thank you, Mrs. Fowler, and left, and I, I got a B. Now, I'm telling you that story so that you realize that despite the fact that I have a good vocabulary and can speak, I am thick, thick-headed, thick-headed. And about seven years later, I had gone to Boulder with Merrill, then we had gone to seminary in Boston, then we'd come back and taken a church and a friend of ours got married, and she married a man who was getting his master's in classics at UW-Madison. And we asked him to come and be an intern at the church. So he came up, and at Christmas, yeah, it was probably January, he said, you know, I went to the Christmas party of the classics department, and he said, you know, all the grad students were hanging around the Fowlers. Her husband had, she and her husband had traded being the chairman of the department. And he said, uh, at one point, we were talking about who can learn Greek and who can't learn Greek. And he said, she said that anybody can learn Greek. And he said, you know what she did then? She told the story of you 
<laughs> she said, and she told the whole story, and he'd heard it from me. She said, if this guy could learn Greek, anybody can learn Greek. Listen, God has made some of us white and some black. God has made us some gregarious and extroverts and some introverts. God has made some of us fat and some of us thin. God has made some of us stupid and some smart. God has made some of us perfect with children, and some of us children can't stand us. Okay? God has given some wealth and others no wealth. God has made almost all of us Americans. And these things are divisions. They're distinctions that God has ordained. And if we try to deny them and to hide them and to think that really loving people will rise above them and not pay them any heed, it's, it's like punching yourself in the face. It's the stupidest thing in the world. A woman has made by God to help. Every child knows this. Give, if you've never seen this couple before, and there's a man and a woman, every single child will depend upon the woman being a helper. And they'll probably expect the man to be looking at his smartphone walking away. And yes, I know some men here are better at mothering children than women are. And some women here, yep, my mother was one of them, better at fathering children than her husband is. But God has made some men some women. And if we refuse to accept that distinction, that division that God has made at the most fundamental level of our lives, it comes before race. And we refuse to honor that distinction and live it the way God commanded it be lived. There is no distinction that God has made in our lives that we will submit to and honor. None. We will resent it that we're not the boss. We'll resent it that other people are brighter than we are. We'll resent it that other people are more outgoing than we are. And we'll sit in the corner demanding that people come to us and then bitter that they didn't. And meanwhile, we're giving off all this stuff, you know. It's like, don't come to me. You see these people every time you have a potluck or a wedding. Right? I mean, I know you guys (laughs) see this. And so now we're going to go in, and we're going to talk about tongues, and we're going to talk about prophecy. And God, in his word, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is going to tell us that prophecy is more important than tongues. And the reason is it builds the church. And so let me tell you something. If you care about your soul and the souls of your wife and your children, you will always hang around prophets. Because they build you up. And the sad thing today is that almost every single Christian in the country hates prophets. I'll end with this. 
I thought I was going to get farther than I did this morning or further than I did this morning in preaching. And so I was reading um, what we're about to go into is the debate about what exactly tongues were. And so the, the commentators are talking about what tongues are. And one of the commentators puts these huge footnotes that end up taking so much space that the text of the commentary is displaced a couple pages for the footnotes. And what the footnotes are is the footnotes are records of in the 1800s in Scotland of, of prophecy in tongues, okay? So, you know, you think that prophecy in tongues is, is today in, in Pentecostal churches, but it's always been in the church, there have always been ecstatic utterances, prophecies, and tongues at various times. They're not constant. And so here we are back in the 1800s. And what place more than any other place in the world would you expect there to never be ecstatic utterances? Scotland. Unless they're drunk. <laughs> you know? Yeah, battle cries, yeah. Then we make movies about it. But listen, um, let me just stop and, and say, ecstasy, ecstatic experience, comes from the Greek ek, out of, and stasis, to stand. So all ecstatic experiences mean is they're experiences where it's as if you're standing outside of yourself and you're possessed. And the question is, are you possessed by a demon or by the Holy Spirit? Does this make sense to you? And so they're giving this description of what it was like to have prophets and tongues in Scotland in the middle of the 19th century, 1856 or so. And there's records of the time. And so this is long account of what it was like. And you feel the buildup come for the ecstasy. You know, they're describing one of them what it was like for him, and then another one what it was like in the, in the assembly, in the church. And the fascinating thing is, at the apex of the, of the ecstasy, when the ecstasy is at its most intense, the Spirit of God is most intensely transporting this person to the seventh heaven. What do you think it is that fills this person? What specific thoughts when he's in complete ecstasy? Some of you know this, and I will tell you I know this. I personally know this. When you are most possessed by the Holy Spirit, it is always the joy for you to say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That is ecstasy. When, a, when someone is caught, transported to heaven, what they see is their sin and the holiness of God. And there is no greater heavenly ecstatic experience that's available to any man or woman than to see our sin and the holiness of God. And so remember what I said, if you care about your soul, the Bible is about to tell us that prophets are number one and that we should desire most of all to prophesy. And I said to you, if you love your wife, you love your children, woman, if you love your husband and you love your children, grandparents, if you love your grandchildren, 
you will always hang with prophets because prophets will convince you of God's holiness and of your sin. And how have we gotten to the day where that's the one thing the church will not tolerate? How have we gotten to that day? I once had the opportunity a couple of times to, uh, uh, how do I say this delicately? To wipe the bottom of an adult. And you know the anticipation of it is awful. You know what's coming. And you know adults are not supposed to have to have themselves wiped, right? And then the time comes where you do it. And do you know what the result of doing it is? It's such a relief. Because it's not nearly what you blew it up to be. You know? In the final analysis, actually all of us are pretty familiar with the process. I think. (laughs) I don't know about these things. And you serve another adult this way, and you leave that experiencing knowing without a shadow of a doubt that you may only have once in your life done something that was in any way analogous to God, but that you just did it. And this is what repentance is. We are made to glorify God. How do you glorify God? By repenting. (laughs) Because finally, when you repent, you confess who God is and who you are. You know yourself and you know God. You know? And this is really where Paul's headed in the next chapter, and we'll get into it. But don't despise prophesying prophesying. Don't, don't despise prophets. Don't try to gag your wife when she points out your sin, your girlfriend. God comes to you through prophecy, and it's a precious gift. Right? Huh? You know, sometimes when I hear people's mothers died or are sick, I think about my mother and how much I still miss her. And I've described her to you. And my description to you is to say that my mother never stopped telling me that I was an idiot, that I was wicked. My mother never stopped telling me that I was disgusting. I never had any illusion that my mother was a romantic. (laughs) She was hard-nosed. And man, do I miss her. You know, she was my prophet. My in-house, in-kitchen prophet. And what a gift she was. So let's pray.